0: This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Out of the Blue podcast. My name is Trish Critic, and today I'm joined by Mark Moss, who is the author of today's article for discussion, an observational study of the efficacy of Cisatricurium compared to Vecuronium in patients with or at risk for ARDS. Dr. Moss is a professor of medicine in the Pulmonary Sciences and Critical Care Division at the University of Colorado. He's also the current president of the American Thoracic Society. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mark.
0: Trish, thanks for the invitation. It's a a real honor to be on this podcast.
1: I'm excited to podcast with you again because you were the person I interviewed the first time I ever did a podcast for this series. So it's great to get you back on um, and talk about something really very different from what we talked about last time.
0: Yeah, last time we talked about um, physical therapy and rehabilitation in the ICU, and this is uh, a different topic.
1: So I was hoping that maybe you could start off by just giving the listers a little sense of of the study. I'm, they may have already read the paper, but if not, give them a, the gist of the study, and then I have a bunch of questions to ask you about it.
0: Sure. I mean, the first thing I want to do is thank Bill Vanderveer and Ty Kaiser. They're the ones who put together the Colorado Pulmonary Outcomes Research Group, and um, it's been a really productive collaboration. Um, I also, Peter Satil is the first author on the paper. He's a real rising star in this area. And he did the majority of the work. We we were interested in the whole issue of ventilator dyssynchrony and trying to reduce ventilator-induced lung injury. Um, and as one of the sites uh, for the Pedal Network for the ROSE study, which is Evaluating the role of cisatracurium for patients with moderate to severe ARDS, we started to get interested in whether it matters which neuromuscular blocking agent is used, especially since there have been um, shortages of cisatracurium um, around the United States. And we realize you can't study everything in a randomized clinical trial. Um, and these large databases, like the one we use for this study, can help answer some questions about the comparative effectiveness of two drugs. So, we wanted to kind of compare the effects of cisatracurium to another neuromuscular blocking agent to see if there 's something special about cisatracurium um, or if it 's just a class effect of a neuromuscular blocking agent and Cisatracurium has several attractive pro- uh, properties such as its elimination is independent of renal hepatic function there are no active metabolites there 's a short half life there are also some direct anti-inflammatory properties of cisatracurium that are independent of the neuromuscular blocking effect and there's also a, a possibility that cisatracurium may reduce ICU acquired weakness so there was plausibility that cisatracurium might um, be a better agent than other neuromuscular blocking agents, and that's why we um, studied this in a large cohort of patients from the Premier database who had ARDS or were at risk for ARDS. And essentially, what we showed in a propensity match study. Um, with other types of sensitivity analyses, that it appeared that cisastrocurium uh, might have a slight benefit in effect in the sense that patients had slightly shorter length of mechanical ventilation and an ICU length of stay. So that's a brief summary of the study.
1: Okay. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, what caught my eye is exactly what you started with, which is In our institution, we do kind of preferentially use Cisatricurium, but there are times we use Vecuronium, and certainly from a cost perspective, there's a little bit of a push to use Vecuronium, so it's in an interesting space in terms of shortages, but also in terms of cost, um, whether or not they're kind of interchangeable or not. So for that reason, I think it's a very relevant question. I want to go back to what you were just saying and start with the population that you studied. So I was interested in the fact that you chose not just patients who had an ICD-9 diagnosis of ARDS, but you said patients who had a risk factor or, or were at risk for ARDS, meaning they had an ICD-9 for things like pneumonia or sepsis. And my sense was from reading the article that you did that because ARDS is underdiagnosed and you are trying to be more inclusive. Is that right?
0: Yeah, that's, that is right. And just to get back to the other point you raised, I, I think it is helpful to know if one drug's better than the other drug just for for um, developing your formulary at a hospital. As you said, there are cost issues, and then there are drug shortage issues potentially. So it's nice to know if it's acceptable to substitute another drug that might be more readily available. In terms of the patient populations, Trish, um, you're absolutely right. We, we Based this a little bit on the Lung Safe Study that was published in JAMA that showed that clinicians uh, uh, under-diagnose ARDS, and at the time of fulfillment of ARDS criteria, only 34% of patients in that study were recognized as having ARDS. So, it suggests not only is it under-diagnosed, but the diagnosis is delayed. In addition, administrative coding, um, such as ICD-9 codes or are not very accurate for ARDS. They're probably pretty specific, but they're not probably very sensitive that way. Also, if the mechanism of neuromuscular blockade is through reducing ventilator induced de- lung injury, you could come up with a, a plausible reason that starting treatment early would be more important. So it's for those three reasons that it's underdiagnosed, that administ- administrative coding isn't accurate and we wanted to make sure we were evaluating patients that were receiving neuromuscular blockade early in their course of mechanical ventilation. So here's the part that was strange to me
1: about that because I understand the theory behind it completely, but the numbers that I see in your paper were that you ha- end up with a just about 7,000 patients who had received neuromuscular blockade within 48 hours of admission, but only 500 and change of those had an ICD-9 diagnosis of ARDS. And while I get that we might have problems with coding or underdiagnosis. That's less than 10% of the patients that are in this cohort. And I would argue, and you can disagree with me, but I would argue that if a patient is sick enough to require neuromuscular blockade, the clinician is more likely to identify that as ARDS, i.e. the reason they're starting neuromuscular blockade is because they've identified this as ARDS and are trying to use a best practice in terms of taking care of that patient. So. Did 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 that give you guys pause at all um, when you saw those numbers?
0: A little bit. Uh, I mean, again, I would hope that the number was a little bit higher about the diagnosis. I, I think it goes back to why are people starting neuromuscular blockade, and I think part of it, especially for a continuous infusion like this is that people are afraid that the patient's not um, interfacing well with the ventilator. Um, and that can happen in patients that, um, as we said, are at risk for ARDS. So I, I think it's multifactorial why that number's so low. Um, I think part of it is a, a little bit of a diagnosis, a little bit of a coding thing, as, as we talked about. Um, and then again, maybe there are times when people are start, starting it early in, in the course of treatment before the x-ray has been done at eight in the morning with it actually shows that the patient's developed ARDS.
1: Yeah, though, I maybe, but this is that they got coded with ARDS at the end of their admission. So you would think that if people were starting neuromuscular blockade, they would be thinking they're doing that for ARDS. It gives me a little bit of pause to think people are using neuromuscular blockade for things that aren't ARDS. That would be weird.
0: Or, Trish, as we said, maybe people are concerned that the patient's not interfacing well with the ventilator yeah. and they, they start the neuromuscular blockade at that time, which I think is happening more and more. Um, but you're right. This study can't can answer that question.
1: Yeah, fair enough. Um, and just so that so that I'm clear on this and the, the listeners are clear, it was that they had to start the neuromuscular blockade within 40 hours of admission and that they had to use it for 48 hours at least. Is that right?
0: That is Correct.
1: Okay. All right. So it would be kind of using it in the way we think of for ARDS. Correct. Okay.
0: So again, we, we were trying to come up with uh, criteria that were somewhat similar to the Papazian study, where we didn't want to include patients where neuromuscular was started very late in the course of their hospitalization and mechanical ventilation. So that's why we wanted to be within the first 48 hours of um, of receiving uh, mechanical ventilation. And we also didn't want to have somebody that just got one dose, uh, one push of uh, of a neuromuscular blocking agent. Um, again, we tried to approximate what was done in the Papazian study. So they got it for at least 48 hours.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And I, and I think that that takes out those people who maybe looked at the synchronous acutely, got a little bit of neuromuscular blockade and then settled out and then they didn't get any more. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what you alluded to a second ago, which is the, the theories around neuromuscular blockades impact on decreasing ventilator-induced lung injury, and then we can talk about whether or not cisatracurium has some unique uh, effects. But you use the phrase in your paper that I'm hearing more and more, which is self-inflicted lung injury. So w- take a minute and, and talk to me about what you mean by self-inflicted lung injury.
0: Well, I should give credit to the people that came up with the term. So there was a, a great critical care perspective in the Blue Journal um, that was published a little bit more than a year ago in February of 2017, written by Laurent Brochard Art Slotsky, and Antonio Passante. Um, and what they raised the issue is that when somebody is on mechanical ventilation and there are working against the ventilator and creating very large intrathoracic negative pressures, that that can potentiate and exacerbate the development of lung edema, especially in the setting of a a patient who has increased vascular permeability. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's, there's the Thought that in, in addition to the, the dysynchrony that might lead to larger title volumes if someone's double triggering or other forms of dysynchrony that simply the, the wide spring, uh, swings in pleural pressure um, in somebody with increased vascular permeability can lead to an increase in the intrathoracic blood volume, um, and uh, that can lead to an increasing formation of pulmonary edema, sort of like the way we think about a negative pressure pulmonary edema situation, or if someone has airway resistance-induced lung injury.
1: Yeah, I think that concept is is an interesting one. The thing that's fascinating to me is that seems like it would take large swings like you were describing. And I'm sure you've had this happen as well. But when I've put people, uh, patients on neuromuscular blockade, very quickly, some of the time you see an improvement in oxygenation. And it's not that they were completely desynchronous. And it wasn't that they were taking huge superimposed breaths or that they were pulling hard on the ventilator. It's just that little bit of taking away any inter, inter, interaction with the ventilator. So I wonder if you think that that even small interactions with the ventilator, if you don't have to have those big swings and changes in intrathoracic pressures, could be somehow perpetuating ventilator-induced lung injury as well.
0: Yeah, I think, I think that's a possibility. I think this is an area where um, and once we figured out that low tidal volume ventilation was an effective therapy for patients with ARDS, I think people thought we'd solve the problem. Um, and I think what we're learning now in a more um, sensitive way is that there are probably things that are going on with the ventilator that are potentiating lung injury, not to the extent of using 12 cc's per kilogram tidal volumes, but in, in a more subtle way, as, as you're mentioning. And I think that's great. It means we're, we're we're advancing the field and getting into an area that's uh, that that's going to have subtle changes um, and subtle improvements, but when you care for a lot of patients, that could improve patient outcome. So, relevant
1: to that, let's talk about the outcomes in your study. So, what you showed was that there was no difference in um, mortality between the groups and there was no difference in getting home at the end of their hospitalization, at least in your propensity model. Um, but you saw showed as you alluded to earlier, a shorter duration of mechanical ventilation and a shorter time in the intensive care unit, and you couldn't do kind of ventilator free days or ICU free days because of the the data that you had. So, I guess my question for you is: those differences were pretty small, and I'm curious. I mean, they're statistically significant, but do you think they're clinically significant in terms of being not on the ventilator as long or not in the ICU as long? If the other kind of bigger outcomes didn't show a difference?
0: Yeah, I I mean, it's a good question, Trish. I think this is where the data is the data. Um, The findings were robust in the sense that we used different, you know, multiple methodologies and sensitivity analyses. And there's a biological plausible reason why cesatricurin might be beneficial compared to other neuromuscular blocking agents. And and as you said, with a sample size this large where there are nearly 2,000 patients in each group, we do need to think about if something is clinically meaningful um, versus just statistically significant. And I would be surprised if there was a difference in mortality just based on the class of the drug. It's a possibility, but I think that's that would be um, uh, unexpected. So I think this is where clinicians and um, pulmonary critical care physicians um, who care for patients like this have to look at this and say, is getting off the ventilator uh, around one day earlier and getting out of the ICU one day earlier beneficial enough to use cisatracurium. I would think from a cost standpoint uh, that it would be. Uh, I, think you, I think what I might say based on this study is that if you have both drugs available, um, it's reasonable to use cisatracurium. However, in the setting of the shortage, and if you're not sure what to do, um, I think it's probably reasonable um, looking at the data to use vecuronium in those situations. But as I said, the data is the data, and I think people can make their own conclusions based on whether they think the, the one less day on a ventilator and one less day in the ICU is clinically important. The thing I would also add to that, Trish, about the ventilator-free days, it just it becomes very difficult where the data is so skewed based on the effects of mortality um, that it makes the analysis a little bit more difficult. And since there was no difference in mortality, uh, we felt comfortable just using ventilator days. It's also a little easier for people to understand.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's reasonable to have done that. I just it's hard to feel like. If you don't change how people get home, and so, you know, how many people get home, is it beneficial to get out of the ICU a day earlier? Yeah, probably on a cost basis it is. Maybe not for the patient, right? That probably doesn't make as much a difference for the patient, but for the, the system and the institution, there could be value in that. So I think it's just teasing those parts of it out.
0: And Trish, that was mentioned in the in the editorial by David Long and Laurent Papazian, where they said that, you know, this is not really a patient-centered outcome, and I would completely agree with them. Um, and as you said, is that important to the patient? Maybe. Uh, it's important to the healthcare system? Probably. Um, but this is a way that at least people can, can look at the situation and try to answer the question, um, does it matter which neuromuscular blocking agents use? Um, and now they have some, some evidence to guide their treatment that way.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I want to talk about one nitty-gritty part of your statistical analysis because I just thought it was interesting. You could make an argument that the outcomes could be driven by the fact that certain institutions choose to use Vecuronium for whatever reason, and those same institutions do some other things with respect to their care of patients with ARDS or patients at risk for ARDS, and thus your results will be driven by the fact that those hospitals care and not the use of Vecuronium was driving those outcomes. So how did you guys deal with that in your analysis?
0: Yeah, it's a very good point. There's There always can be unmeasured confounding in, in studies like this. You try to get away from that by matching, but I don't think it's ever perfect. There's, there's also an issue about generalizability. You can only match on the people you can match on. And whether the data is applicable to the people that you couldn't match on is, is also a, a, a question with this type of study. So we tried to match on factors that impact why you would use one drug versus the other. So organ system failure is a good example of that with um, patients that were more likely to have liver or renal dysfunction, we're also more likely to get cisatracurium. So there's a bias towards probably that sicker patients would get cis um, So we try to adjust for that. In addition, as you mentioned, we, we put in factors that tried to adjust for the type of hospital. We're always limited by what the database has, and we could adjust in terms of region, size, teaching, non-teaching, rural versus urban. And then to also get at the issue that you talked about, we also did a sensitivity analysis. We stratified by those hospitals that only use cisatracurium, those hospitals that only use vecuronium, and those that um, use both uh and um, vecuronium. And we saw that there was really no difference in the outcome between those three groupings of hospitals. So does that definitively answer the, the concern that you raised? Absolutely not. But um, those are the limitations of studies like this. And as as we talked about earlier, you can't do a randomized clinical trial for everything. Um, I'm not sure it would be worthwhile to do a large, four thousand patient study in ARDS to um, compare one. Um, type of neuromuscular blocking agent to the other. So this might be the best that we can do this way. Um, I'm not saying you couldn't do the clinical trial. I'm just not sure that funding agencies would be interested in funding a study like that. So I think more and more, we're going to have to rely on studies like this to help make clinical decisions um, just due to the inability to always do a randomized clinical trial.
1: Yep, yeah, I think that makes sense, and I would agree. So, my second to last question for you is: Has it changed your practice?
0: Um, that that's a, that's a good question, Trish. Um, we, you know, I I think in in general it, it probably hasn't because um, just where we work, uh, cisatricurium is readily available. I would think in the setting of a shortage, uh, I would feel more comfortable using becuronium, though I think in that situation, I'm not sure what else you would use. So I think it maybe makes me feel more comfortable in in what we're doing and realizing that using a drug that uh, is slightly more expensive um, might have uh, financial reasons to use that in terms of length of stay.
1: Fair enough. And my last question is, you alluded to the ROSE trial already, which is, I think, only use and, and not vacuronium. Is that right? Correct. So it's not going to answer this question, but it will potentially give us some more insights on the use of neuromuscular blockade. When can we anticipate hearing more about ROSE?
0: Now, it's, a, it's a good question. We've enrolled almost 1,000 patients in the study, so the enrollment's been phenomenal. Um, about 1.2 patients per day, which is higher than any of the prior ARDS uh, network studies. Um, So we've enrolled that many patients in a little over two years. The second interim analysis will be done in the next few months, um, and if that shows that we should continue on, then the study would probably finish up somewhere early in 2019. If that shows that the study should stop for whatever reason, whether for efficacy or no difference between the, the two agents, uh, we would know that probably in the next few months. And you're absolutely right, this, it would not answer the question which neuromuscular blocking agent to use. It would answer the question, should we use a neuromuscular blocking agent early in ARDS? And one thing that's really interesting about the study, Trish, is that patients are being enrolled very quickly um, from the time of meeting the criteria for ARDS to being randomized into the study is somewhere around seven hours, which is very, very quick for ARDS network or for, for ARDS studies. That's amazing. Yeah, so people are working really hard in um, finding patients and enrolling them early, which is really what the Pedal Network was about to try to show if early treatments are are more beneficial for ARDS. And again, getting back to the mechanism, if we think that neuromuscular blockade is uh, improving outcomes by reducing ventilator induced lung injury, it would make sense that the earlier you start something like that, the better.
1: Yep. I look forward to finding out the results arose. I think that a lot of us do, because I think while there is evidence to support the use of neuromuscular blockade, there's still concerns about weakness and other downstream effects of putting people on neuromuscular blocking agents. So more to come, and perhaps we'll get to talk again on a podcast. Thank you so much for your time today, Mark. I really appreciate it. It was great to talk about this article, which I found really interesting to read. And the whole conversation really added to to my reading of
0: the piece. Well, Trish, thanks for inviting me. And again, I want to thank Peter Satil for doing most of the work and the rest of our group uh, for for working together collaboratively on this study. So for the listeners, to read the article discussed
1: in this podcast, please visit the podcast homepage at www.atsjournals.org. To listen to more episodes of Out of the Blue, visit our page on iTunes or Google Play. You can also subscribe to stay updated whenever new episodes are available. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.